Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco, bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today on the wings of Alliance for Natural Health, both USA and international, we will be traveling to London around the topic of vaccine transparency and the immune system. This is not an anti-vax screed, but simply a request for data so we can approach vaccination for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, with full informed consent. Informed consent is the foundation of medical practice. The American Medical Association, the AMA, Code of Medical Ethics, Opinion 2.1.1 states, and I place this in quotes, informed consent to medical treatment is fundamental in both ethics and law. They continue, patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so they can make well-considered decisions about care. Informed consent also includes the role of conflicts of interest. How does the group promoting the medical treatment stand to financially benefit? And where does this come from? Almost 75 years ago, out of the Nuremberg trial, generated the Nuremberg Code that gave the international community a standard for ethical interventions. The Belmont Report followed that dictated a respect for the person as a patient, beneficence, or first of all, do no harm, and justice in medical treatments. These are standards that we're asking our medical leaders to put into place when developing and distributing the vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Today, on the Art and Soul of Healing, we will be visiting my friends and colleagues at Alliance for Natural Health International in the UK, Dr. Rob Verkirk and Mel Aldrich, to discuss the topic of vaccine data transparency. This will enable all of us as human citizens of the world to exercise our rights to give informed consent when the time comes to receive the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. I'd like to welcome Mel and Rob. Hi, Mel and Rob. It's good morning Hi, here, <laughs> but it's afternoon Hi, in the UK. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you coming on the Art and Soul of Healing to discuss vaccine transparency. And that's a broad topic because it not only includes data, but informed consent. So we've had this promise that the vaccine will release us from the SARS-CoV-2 tyranny. Can you speak to that? Jeannie, it's a question mark over it, of course, because we've never seen vaccines produced in warp speed timeframes. We've also never seen synthetic biology being used to the extent that it is. And of course, the, the front runners are all what we could loosely refer to as synthetic biology vaccines. The guys who are coming behind them, the Janssens, for example, of this world, are going to be more conventional vaccines, and it takes them longer to produce them. But because the front runners have the capacity to deliver the numbers that we're seeing in terms of both in the industrialized world and also 
the developing world. I mean, a lot of people involved in the global vaccination program are have their eyes set on potentially 7 billion people. And many of the vaccines require two doses. That's a hell of a lot of doses. So conventional vaccine technology cannot deliver that kind of output, but synthetic biology can. Mm. But when you skip animal trials and then you concertina in phase one, two, and three clinical trials, um, essentially the human being, we become the <laughs> guinea pigs. So, um, and we've got limited data, and I know we're going to be talking a lot about transparency, but we've got limited data. While we've got some, what I might describe as horsepower figures out now um, that relate to um, vaccine efficacy, and that is a big issue to talk through, mm -hmm. um, whether we're looking at just neutralizing antibodies, whether we're looking at, uh, you know, B cell and T cell responses and the real long-term memory uh, T cell responses. We don't have for many um, vaccines, any of those data. So we're kind of running blind at the moment. So yes, the short answer is we have a question mark in front of us. Well, I, I think it'd be good to understand, first of all, this development of these uh, genetically synthesized vaccines have not been in the usual sequence, but rather more in tandem. In fact, some of the vaccines have already been manufactured even before uh, the trials were run. So could, maybe it would be helpful for you to talk about the traditional technologies first, and then what are these novel genetic engineering techniques? Well, it, you know, it's very interesting because um, if I look at my, my um, adolescent children, my youngest children, um, they are learning all about vaccines as part of their national curriculum at the moment. And they're learning about old school vaccine technology. So um, I'll give you the, the brief on that, which is um, take your particular pathogen and, and attenuate it, which means basically somehow damaging it in such a way that it is incapable of creating live infection. Um, but nevertheless, you take with it, particularly the, the protein elements of it that are the primary antigen that your immune system recognizes. So the administration of that, and essentially to, to grow these vast numbers, the traditional system is to be, is using eggs, chicken eggs. And, um, and huge numbers of chicken eggs are required. Um, it's a slow process. And, um, and then essentially by combining that, what, some of the real developments over the last um, 20, 30 years has been, how can you use less of the antigen and mm -hmm. still trigger an enhanced immune response that responds to the specific antigen of that pathogen? And, um, this is really a way of tricking the immune system and turning it into a sort of hyper-responsive state. And the, the mechanism, one of the most common mechanisms for that has been to essentially administer neurotoxins to the system. Mm -hmm. um, and the most common neurotoxin that, that, that is used is aluminum hydroxide. So, um, and I the, want to interrupt you because yes. for my... U.S. <laughs> listeners, that's aluminum. Aluminum. <laughs> aluminium, but it sounds yeah. much better as aluminium. <laughs> yes, actually, yes, so aluminum. So, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's the reason why in some people who are, 
let me get it right, aluminum sensitive. Um, they <laughs> but I have can... UK listeners too, so please. Okay. <laughs> so so you, you create this sort of hypersensitivity within the immune system through these um, adjuvanted vaccines that then means that it's on hyper alert. So when it's then exposed to the antigen, you then effectively transfer that reaction between the um, the innate immune system, which is your kind of first response team. Um, and then you've got, you know, while you've got mast cells and natural killer cells, you've also got these incredibly intelligent dendritic cells that, that are the interface between the first responder innate team and the special forces unit of the adaptive um, immune system, which takes certain, you know, days to develop. And, um, and then you start getting a... a, a you know, a B cell humoral response and a T cell cell mediated response. And it's really what's fascinating about the current crop of vaccines is that you're seeing a, a real mixture of different immunogenicity endpoints that are being measured. So some of them, mm -hmm. when they know, for example, with the Pfizer vaccine, they had two vaccines that, that, that they developed that essentially um, BioNTech the German company um, developed. And the, the first one created a really strong T cell response. And that would have been really nice from a vaccine point of view because it would have created an enhanced immunogenic effect. Um, so, you know, it, it wouldn't be something that you might be concerned that after three or four months wouldn't work anymore. The problem with it is it had to be disbanded because the side effects were too great. So that was discovered in the phase one trials. So the, the particular vaccine candidate that they've continued with is one that creates not a T cell response, but a B cell response. So it's the humoral, the shorter term response. Um, so now we look at the phase three trials and you'll see that they're not measuring T cells at all. So when it goes out there, we will really have no real idea except from long-term post-marketing surveillance of how effective it's going to be. And one of the interesting things in the Northern Hemisphere is we have a fairly good idea that, that um, SARS-CoV-2 is pretty much a cold weather virus. So it'll come seasonally, much in the way that influenza A comes, and so even if you only have three or four months protection, it might provide some protection during the winter, but a lot of people might expect that it's providing them 12 months worth of protection before they go and have their jab 12 months on. But frankly, big question marks. Well, I, could you tell uh, our listeners exactly what this new platform is? How are they engineering this vaccine currently? It's, it's never been done before. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, if you look so far at the, uh, the BioNTech um, Pfizer version and also the Moderna version that in the States obviously is getting a lot of uh, airtime at the moment, these are both messenger RNA um, vaccines. So what they do by providing a specific synthetic, I, I talked about synthetic biology vaccines, which is, I think, how they're going to be regarded long term. But that, even that idea of them being um, 
essentially a form of genetic modification hasn't really got into the mm. public domain. But mm -hmm. what essentially they do is provide um, instructions to the transcription machinery in the cells, particularly of your muscles. They're an intramuscular injection. They're all IM injections. So um, they then provide instructions to your muscles to say, ah, we have received what we think is a natural piece of um, genetic code that's transcribed from DNA to RNA. And our job is to produce the full length spike protein of mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2. So essentially what it does is turn your muscles into the vaccine factory. So the, your, your own body is producing the antigen. The mm -hmm. antigen has not been produced in an egg yolk. So um, you can see that if you're producing this, this instructional genetic sequence, it's, and you have learned through gene editing, sequencing technologies to be able to do that, which is a very new technology, you can then essentially turn the human body into a vaccine factory. And of course, the promise is this vaccine will induce herd immunity. So is that being tested? Although, they, although they are saying now that you're going to need multiple doses. Um, they, they, they've moved the, the, you know, they've sort of moved the bar somewhat because initially they were talking about the fact that they were looking for a vaccine that had over a 90% success rate and um, <clears throat> efficacy rate. And now it's slid all the way down to sort of around 50%. And they're saying it's going to be multiple doses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The, the, the bottom line is that even in the phase one trials, it was fairly clear which vaccines, I mean, if you, if you keep an eye on the um, WHO COVID landscape um, pages that tells you um, exactly which, you know, there are about 30 vaccines currently in mm -hmm. clinical trial. There are around about 200 candidates altogether. So there's an awful lot of them. And they have to determine very early on what the immunogenicity of, of that is in the phase one trial, whether there would be a, a single or a two-dose um, approach. Um, so they, they've known there's a two-dose approach. The WHO, in trying to establish um, how, from modeling studies essentially, how the vaccine would work to create herd immunity, did try and really reduce the level from 70% um, efficacy down to 50% efficacy. They were concerned that some of these synthetic biology vaccines would not make it. Um, I have to say, and I see this perhaps slightly cynically, that um, I think they may have done that as well um, in the knowledge that actually the phase three results when seen in isolation would be much better than that. So there would be a massive good news story to mm -hmm. tell the public. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, we've seen, I mean, we are definitely now amidst a vaccine race. We, we've seen, um, you know, uh, as, as soon as BioNTech and Pfizer came out with their um, greater than 90%, um, Sputnik, the <laughs> Russian one, came up with 92%. Um, <laughs> Then Moderna came up with um, 94% and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and of course now Pfizer have completed phase three with their 170 70 exposures of which um, 
the majority the majority of um, um, COVID symptoms were obviously experienced in the unvaccinated group. They've said, "Look, we we beat the lot because we've come back with ninety five percent." So, and the, these figures are not um, that meaningful because the numbers are small. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have not published um, great detail of exactly. Um, what the underlying conditions, you know, we've seen in some of the vaccines that there is definitely a more effective immune response in, uh, in younger people. Um, Oxford University, AstraZeneca, the, the main UK candidate, mm-hmm. has just celebrated the idea yesterday, um, published in The Lancet, that the great thing about their vaccine, unlike um, the um, Pfizer vaccine, is that they have no lesser immune response in older people, the over 65s compared with younger people. So, you know, it's, there's definitely going to be a situation in which there are multiple vaccines around. Um, There will be no doubt a lot of horse trading going on, determining Mm -hmm. which ones are going to be used in the Western world, which ones are going to be used for older people, Mm -hmm. which ones are going to be used for people with more underlying conditions, um, which ones are going to be shipped off to developing countries. um, And the idea is to create um, a situation in which uh, most of these companies don't end up out of pocket. And some of them might end up with very deep pockets. Um, For Mm -hmm. example, uh, AstraZeneca have already said, um, because they've got a crystal ball, they've mm-hmm. said that <laughs> by 1st of July, 2021, the pandemic will be over. Um, so, so they can start charging. <laughs> yeah, so their, non, their, non-profit, their non-profit pledge expires on the 1st of July, 2021, and they'll start to sell probably with a surcharge that will allow them to rapidly make up any of the R&D costs that they've put in so far. So, you know, it's, it's not all as a nonprofit. Let's get that straight. You know, that's part of this ethical concern is just who's going to benefit financially from this, this conflict of interest disclosure. And, you know, maybe we ought to switch now to your 10-point manifesto. This might be a good time to switch to that. Before we talk about this, perhaps you ought to say how this came about and who you partnered yeah. with. Yeah. So, Jeannie, one of the very problematic aspects of um, trying to, first of all, maintain the idea that there is a single disease that requires global attention that justifies the closure of businesses, economies, impacts on livelihoods, impacts on taxpayers that may go on for decades for well, certainly years and maybe a decade, possibly more, um, is, is um, I mean, it's a very peculiar situation to have to face. What, what on earth do we do if next year there's another pathogen? Do we do this every time? Um, so, um, and, and in trying to maintain this, this pressure, this, you know, this, this unilateral focus on a single disease, what's been happening is that the possibility of engaging in dialogue, scientific dialogue on a matter that is laced with scientific uncertainty um, has been almost eliminated. And the way in which it's been done, and just today is a 
a new announcement, a global announcement that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google are all going to be sitting down with the medicines regulators and governments to find ways of further shutting down any critical voices, dissenting voices around vaccination. So you, you essentially control the airwaves. You, um, you, anyone who even asks a question about vaccines is, is immediately put into this um, um, you know, conspiracy theory. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, that's in direct violation of the Nuremberg Council. I mean, that, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's inconceivable <laughs> to me that, that people that ask questions and want to know what's going on, what's the information, what's behind this, what's the raw data, they're, they're being considered anti-vaxxers. And it's not an anti-vax discussion. It's an informed consent discussion. It surely is. And, and, and what you're seeing as well is that they're taking that a step further. And it's not just now that you're labeled anti-vax or you're put in the conspiracy theory camp, but um, suddenly we're seeing that you're also far right and racist and everything else, and suddenly all of this. So there's all of this political narrative and these triggering words that have been used constantly to just, you know, at a deep psychological level, um, dissuade people from going down that route at all. And, you know, the glaring thing that anybody who engages with critical thinking um, must be thinking is, you know, why, why go to such lengths to actually prevent discourse? And discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, is there something to hide? Which br- brings us back to your number one point. Yeah. So, so this is where the Transparency uh, Manifesto came from. It said, right, we have to become grown up in terms of dealing with this issue. We cannot accept that it is a taboo that no one talks about because for many people, it is one of the most important healthcare decisions that they're likely to be making. You know, you've got your your elderly parents to think about, you've got your children to think about, you've got your friends and your loved ones to think about. And do you or do you not have sufficient information? As you, as you again rightly say, um, a, any um, vaccination is a medical intervention. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a medical intervention, it through um, national and international law, as well as an extensive literature on the ethics of medical interventions, requires um, those with mental capacity to be able to make, um, inf- to give in- informed consent. And that informed consent then requires that the, um, the healthcare professional involved with it, and this is one of our great concerns, as soon as you do what they're doing in the UK, which is to say, hey, we want a mass vaccination um, program and we're going to have to bring in the army. You are putting a untrained healthcare professional in the position of the medical interventionist who is not then in a position to necessarily ask, be able to answer questions um, about the risks and the benefits of the particular intervention that they're administering. So it's, it's the whole idea of, a, of, of vaccine transparency um, and the manifesto that we built with our colleagues at the British Society for Ecological Medicine, which is the main medical doctor group in the UK involved in nutritional and environmental medicine, 
um, who are concerned for exactly the same reasons as we are, we thought what we need to do is develop, is, is, is essentially issue um, a series of criteria that we think is the minimum amount of information that you require to be able to make, um, to give informed consent. And that's really what this was about. It was also really about trying to move to a new narrative about how we discuss vaccines so that you're not either being forced into mm -hmm. a pro-vaccine camp or an anti-vaccine mm -hmm. camp. This is neither pro or anti. It's not. It's the vaccine transparency camp saying, mm -hmm. guys, information is essential to this equation. We've all got to be adult and grown up about it. There is a, a very real and chartered history of um, that people like Peter Doshi and others have, have Tom Jefferson and others have, have been have really exposed and they've in that process they've been um, real whistleblowers for what's really been going on and you know we've seen it um, um, with pandemics we've seen the the, the cover up around uh, narcolepsy side mm -hmm. effects in children astonishing cover ups that that mm -hmm. have now been drawn out and. Um, I've got to say, give a big plug here to the British Medical Journal because it's been um, unlike the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine that are, interestingly, the key journals that are publicizing the phase one, two, and three trials for the current crop of candidate vaccines for COVID. Um, the BMJ has consistently um, been really pushing for transparency of data, uh, of conflicts of interest um, around both vaccines and, and conventional drugs. Let's come back to Doshi in the British Medical Journal in a minute. But first, your first point in your 10-point vaccine transparency manifesto says full disclosure of raw data from studies and trials to allow independent analysis. Is that being done? It, it, it absolutely isn't. So uh, I'll give you an example that um, if you look at the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine um, to the outside observer, it looks pretty kosher that they've met that transparency requirement. Let's remember that transparency requirement. The reason why it's sitting as number one is because the Cochrane team, including Tom Jefferson, um, supported by Peter Doshi and others, were the ones to really find years after the pandemic's data, and they've also done the same with HPV, is said, you know, <laughs> The, the, the conclusions you drew did not match to the, to the data. And it was only after pushing and pushing with the help and support of the BMJ that eventually the companies came clean and supplied the raw data. And when you analyze the raw data independently, you come up with different conclusions mm -hmm. to the primary and secondary outcomes compared with those that were originally published. And this is why it makes me nervous when I see the kind of claims that, that Pfizer, Moderna, um, and AstraZeneca are making now in the absence of detailed data. I mean, I, I personally think they should sit on their data until they've got the whole lot together and then release it mm -hmm. because otherwise you're just titillating a public that is desperate to be released mm -hmm. from lockdowns, from job losses, from all the hardships that have been endured by 
um, through government policy. And in the U.S., it allows them to go forward to the FDA for, uh, you know, with the approval of the drug, of the vaccine. The, the emergency approval, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they will go through um, emergency approval with, with, without any doubt. So that's the starting point. I, I was saying that when you look at the, the data, even with the AstraZeneca phase one and two trial, um, I'll just give you two indications of, of where we saw problems. They had 135 pages of supplementary data. That's mm-hmm. quite an impressive load of data. But when you start to track through the adverse event data in those 135 pages, what you find is that they relate to the phase one trial that mm-hmm. had, from memory, 88 people in it. And they didn't relate to the phase two trial that had over 300 people, again, from mm-hmm. memory mm-hmm. in it. And, you know, this is, this is a numbers game, ultimately. Mm-hmm, Statistics are more and more powerful with greater numbers. Now, why did they not give us the, the detailed data that was showing that most people suffered moderate? And you've got to remember the classification that's mm-hmm. used by the World Health Organization. It's not moderate, moderate adverse reactions. It's moderately severe mm-hmm. adverse reactions. Now, many of these reactions are systemic effects that impact the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. When we look at some of the long-term problems um, that that are caused through long-term neurological damage in terms of um, uh, vaccine side effects, that's one that you need to be very wary of. And we know, Jeannie, you'd be the first to to recognize this, that um, all you need is a single trauma in mm-hmm. a susceptible individual to instigate a catalogue of downstream effects. The same with, with if you're going to be looking at autoimmune effects, this is not something you can determine in two or three months, which is the only time frame available before um, emergency use authorization is going to be granted by the FDA, the MHRA, and other national very agencies. very quick. So that leads to your second point, as you were just discussing, full transparency in relation to safety and efficacy trials. So the safety data, I think, is is critical to know. That that absolutely has to be released. Look, look absolutely. And, um, you know, so at the moment where we are, say, with Moderna and Pfizer, they are releasing a particular measure of efficacy. Um, and um, And that is partially symptomatic, but as you well know, um, because the, we're at a different stage of the, uh, of, of the, I would call it an epidemic rather than a pandemic, we're at a different stage of it now. We've got a virus that has mutated well over 200 times. Um, the normal pattern of response um, with any with an introduction of any new pathogen to a novel host is that the reaction is more extreme early on and then essentially calms down with time. Um, it's very clear when you look at the you know, hospital admission data, you look at the um, severity of symptoms, the um, decisions to, you know, in, in uh, critical care facilities to have to admit administer um, supplementary oxygen or consider even ventilators. That is no longer a big issue um, in, in critical care. Um, and um, so, so the, the, 
you know, we wouldn't expect to see such severe reactions. We're not looking at a very clear kind of binary effect about um, how a vaccine will directly save lives. You know, we're more in a similar situation. If you look at Relenza, the antiviral drug, you know, that, that was, you know, government spent massive sums of money when we had the, uh, um, the possibility of an avian flu um, pandemic, which never really turned out. But, you know, the long and short of that is that you're looking at half a day, the best clinical trials on it, the ones that, that got it through registration, is half a day, fewer symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, so so we've, got to, we've got to determine what the actual efficacy parameters are. If you're only looking at enhancement of, of say, neutralizing antibodies, frankly, that's not enough. I mean, why, why is that the ultimate endpoint or changing slightly the pattern of symptoms or the severity of symptoms for people who have disease? Does it still justify um, putting this kind of resource into it? Mm-hmm. And then if you don't have a really detailed idea of what the safety profile is and exactly who benefits, who doesn't, who's more at risk, who's less at risk, you can't really make an informed decision about the overall risk benefit profile, which you need to. And, you know, this might be a good time to jump to the Doshi opinion piece in the British Medical Journal. And actually, it was very well written, and he had a lot of data behind his opinion, um, talking specifically about what those endpoints were in the clinic, in the uh, multiple clinical trials that have been set up to date. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, so, some of the key endpoints are actually safety endpoints and are not um, COVID disease reduction endpoints. Um, and of course, the whole thing is skewed because so much emphasis is being put on the presence of people who score a positive PCR test result. And, you know, from a scientific point of view, one of the clear problems, I mean, we've never ever done this before for any infectious disease that we are, we don't have what, what, what we would call read across. We don't have evidence that um, PCR test results translate to infectious disease Mm -hmm. because you can have, you can have fragments mm-hmm. of of, um, of of the you know particular spike protein or the membrane protein, depending on which PCR test you're using, that gives a positive signal. And you've also got because of Bayes' theorem, the statistical theorem that underlies all screening and diagnostic tests, that tells you when you um, are at very low prevalence of a particular disease. This applies to cancer screening as well, as you, as you know, Jeannie. Um, you have a much, much higher rate of false positives. So we've got this big misunderstanding, you know, particularly amongst the politicians, that when they see a PCR test that's sitting at, um, say, 96% sensitivity, first of all, they don't acknowledge that that is a, a lab result Secondly, they, they, they don't, and, and of course I should say that um, as a lab result, when you take it into the field because of differences in the way in which you take a nasal pharyngeal swab um, together with contamination and many other factors, 
the sensitivity is never as high as that claimed by the manufacturers. So it might be 90%, but the politicians still think that a 90% sensitivity means you're only going to have a 10% false positive rate. What happens in low prevalence situations, which is what most people are living in most of the time, is that ratio is reversed to the point that nine out of 10 samples are likely to be false positives. I think it's also important for people to understand that these trials were not designed to show that there was a reduction in severe COVID-19 disease. And it was not, these trials were not designed to enter, to to determine if, if the vaccine could interrupt the transmission from person to person. So, you know, all of this talk about herd immunity, when actually they're not even trying to determine if there is reduction in transmission. Correct. And in fact, the, the, I think the most robust evidence we currently have for how you would break the transmission cycle involves children. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's very clear that, that kids, one of the reasons that we see so little disease in kids is because their innate immune system, there's a, there's a fantastic paper that's just been published in uh, Nature Communications um, that we wrote about in our uh, newsletter yesterday um, that, that looks in incredible detail at the um, kinetics of um, innate um, humoral and cell-mediated immune responses in a single family. The parents went off to a wedding for three days um, from, from Melbourne in Australia um, and came back and they looked in great detail at the parents and, and these three children's age, nine, seven, and five. Turns out that all three kids went through a very enhanced immune reaction but never had any traceable um, virology within them. There, there, were, there were no positive PCR or any other tests. They could not find virus within these children. So what it almost certainly means is the kid's innate immune response was so strong that it prevented the virus from replicating within them. And it, if you like, that's the perfect vaccine, mm-hmm. is it mm-hmm. not? That's exactly how you break attempt to break the transmission cycle with a vaccine. You, you have someone who effectively, whose immune response behaves like the five-year-old girl. Incidentally, there was a, there was a you know, the, the youngest kid who was the one who also was exposed to the highest viral load. She slept in the same bed as her parents uh-huh. who were, when they were at, during the most infectious phase of COVID-19 and she never allowed that virus to get into a system and start replicating. And it's by interrupting that cycle. And clearly the way in which you do that is through a really well-primed, very healthy immune system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. I want to switch to adverse events. So let's say we roll out the vaccine and there's a certain number of people and it's inevitable will be injured by the vaccine. Do they have recourse payment compensation? What, what happens at this point? You know, we, we, um, the, the, I don't think any country has firmly worked out whether they're going to use the same 
um, no-fault compensation system. You can remember in, in the 1980s, there, was, there were international agreements that determined because the vaccine makers who had been increasingly getting on board with governments, this is where the relationship started developing in the late 1980s, saying, you know, we think that actually one of the most proactive ways of dealing with disease prevention is to start producing vaccines as part of national vaccination programs. And the vaccine company said, do you know what? We're not prepared to take the risk here because we know these vaccines can be intrinsically unsafe. And, you know, Jeannie, I just want to make the point here because actually while that was happening, I was working in the field in Australia around pesticides and we successfully lobbied the Australian government to prevent the agrochemical industry from calling any pesticides safe because they too, back in the 80s, were calling pesticides safe and effective. And we showed that they were using um, inappropriate proxies for safety. They were using mammalian toxicity data from you know, LD50 studies mm -hmm. to say that they were safe. And we were saying with even with... Uh, Glyphosate back then, we were one of the first, um, you know, academic campaign groups to call them out on glyphosate, saying, hold on, even though it breaks down in the soil in four days, you know, you can see that on, on inert surfaces above ground where there's no soil microorganisms, it's intact. How can you call these things safe? And of course, you've got to look at the delayed effects, the potential carcinogenicity, mutagenicity, teratogenicity. So um, I think exactly the same applies to vaccines, that it should be illegal, given that we have a vaccine court in the United States, we've got similar instruments in, in other parts of the world that go about their business when you have a rock solid case, you've got to remember, there's still large numbers of people who are unsuccessful because mm -hmm. they haven't necessarily got sufficient data or all their ducks in a row or enough money to keep appealing and keep their cases going. But um, there's a very clear um, evidence to suggest that the, these, these uh, vaccines are not intrinsically safe. They, are, they have a safety issue. So um, um, you, you may have seen in, in, in one of our reports, there is a, an advert that the UK uh, MHRA, the, the FDA of the UK, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, um, mm -hmm. has put out saying that they want to engage um, tenders for companies that can provide an AI system mm -hmm. to deal with the, the high level of adverse event reports for mm -hmm. COVID vaccines. So they are fully anticipating. You, you've got to remember the trials, the phase three trials so far, dealing with relatively small numbers. When you mm -hmm. are trying to vaccinate whole populations, you can expect tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people to be saying, we're suffering adverse events, many of them systemic. What do you do with these? Are governments really, with, with this amount of pressure on them, are they really going to um, allow these cases to be heard through through the vaccine court and similar It's very courts. concerning. And yeah. you've, you've talked about the influence of pharmaceutical industry on the World Health Organization, FDA, your, M your MHRA, the CDC at length. Um, it, 
it, it really is a revolving door between the pharmaceutical industry and people who staff these re- regulatory agencies. Yeah, I, I mean, as as Fiona Godley, the editor of the BMJ, says, you know, it, it is to a degree a rather unique industry in the sense that it's hard to get people who have real expertise around vaccines who haven't had experience with the vaccine industry. Um, but but just in the way that, um, you know, we, we have um, objective observers in certain technical fields that are brought into court cases to observe on the objectivity. We haven't seen that kind of develop, development here um, in terms of uh, interpreting, you know, what should go on. But um, it, look, it's deeply disturbing to, to think that um, people might just roll their sleeves up without double checking. What, what's the comeback if you suffer an adverse event? You know, when we, when we you know, buy a car or, or insure our house, we, we know exactly what to do if the wheels of the car fall off or the roof of our house falls in. You know, we know exactly what to do. Why on earth would you take your single most, most precious asset, your body, and put an unknown synthetic biology vaccine into it without knowing what you might do if something goes wrong? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to make this 10-point vaccine transparency manifesto available by a link on the Art and Soul of, Web, of Healing website. At this point, we're going to take a break and come back next week to conclude the episode of Vaccine Transparency and the Immune System. Until then, thank you from the art and soul of healing.